Today I'd like to welcome to the PodMD studio Dr. Gokul Tamalarasan. Dr. Tamalarasan is a consultant gastroenterologist and hepatologist. He trained as a junior medical officer and physician trainee at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital before completing his gastroenterology training at Royal Prince Alfred and Concord Repatriation General Hospital. Gokul also has a keen interest in teaching and currently holds a clinical associate lecturer title with the University of Sydney. Today, we'll be discussing the basics of inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast, but please remember that the advice given here is of a general nature and is not intended as specific advice about a given patient. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the doctor, not PodMD. If you do have a patient on whom you require specific advice, then please seek advice from a colleague with appropriate expertise in that area. Gokul, thanks for talking with us on PodMD today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. The topic of today's discussion is the basics of inflammatory bowel disease. To begin, can you please describe for our listeners what IBD is? Absolutely. So inflammatory bowel disease is a, a chronic um, idiopathic inflammatory disorder of the gastrointestinal tract, uh, and it has a range of intestinal and extra-intestinal manifestations. Um, the the umbrella term of, of inflammatory bowel disease then gets divided into Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Um, but this is uh, a fairly artificial, you know, subdivision. Um, and there is a group of patients that can't always be easily put into one bucket or the other. Um, and these patients are said to have indeterminate colitis. Um, uh, and, and just speaking about uh, UC and, and Crohn's disease separately, um, most GPs, I think, would be familiar with the fact that ulcerative colitis is ten, tends to be limited to the large bowel and primarily confined to the mucosa, so it's a more superficial disease. Whereas on the on the other hand, Crohn's disease is a pan-intestinal or pan-enteric condition that is transmural, deep ulcers, can cause fistulizing disease or, or stricturing disease and, and, and abscesses as well. So that's this, the main differences between the two. And they both generally tend to have a bimodal age of onset. So you get a lot of patients diagnosed in their teens or 20s, and then you also get a smaller peak of patients getting diagnosed sort of in their 50s and 60s. How would a patient with IBD typically present? Um... It's very variable um, is probably the best summary for that question. Um, but the symptoms really depend on whether the patient has Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and really also depends on um, sort of their disease duration. Uh, duration, sorry. Um, but the typical symptoms would include um, some of um, either bloody diarrhea or, or, or watery diarrhea with mucus, um, nocturnal diarrhea is always pathological and needs investigation. Um, rectal symptoms in patients that have either perianal disease or, or proctitis could include rectal bleeding, tenesmus or urgency, um, occasionally leading to fecal incontinence. Um, and then more vague symptoms, which could be any number of diagnoses, um, um, but warrant further investigation would include abdominal pain or an abdominal mass fever or systemic symptoms, mouth ulcers, um, and, and then fistulae, uh, particularly around the, um, the anus, or, or perianal abscesses can also be a, a, a diagnostic feature of Crohn's disease. Um, and then finally, the non-intestinal 
uh, or what we call extra intestinal manifestations can include things like inflammatory arthritis, um, pyoderma gangrenosum or erythema nodosum, um, uh, or ocular manifestations. So these, these are all, uh, 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 you know, a broad range of symptoms that don't always present, but can be uh, diagnostic of, of inflammatory bowel disease and, and need to be looked into, uh, particularly if the less common ones um, uh, are what you're seeing for the first time. What is the diagnostic workup for IBD? So I, I think like any um, presentation, um, we generally start with simple tests and work our way up to the more sort of diagnostic or more invasive tests. So I think the, the basics in terms of um, what needs to be done at a GP level, I'd suggest that basic blood work and stool tests are probably the mainstay. This would include the routine, you know, full blood count and um, uh, looking for anemia and um, uh, raised inflammatory markers. So a raised white cell count, CRP or ESR are particularly uh, common in Crohn's disease. They can occur definitely in ulcerative colitis as well, but you shouldn't be completely surprised if um, these markers are, are closer to normal because the fact is that given ulcerative colitis is confined to the bowel mucosa alone, you don't always get systemic inflammation, which means that you don't always get that reflected in your blood tests. Um, uh, we mentioned anemia. Anemia of chronic disease can present quite commonly or even iron deficiency anemia can be at the first sign of inflammatory bowel disease, um, particularly if you have small bowel disease impairing iron absorption. Um, we do need to exclude other diagnoses, so things like celiac disease um, needs to be excluded, so uh, sending off a celiac serology is really helpful and, and relevant, particularly if uh, the patient has comorbid thyroid disease, diabetes or iron deficiency. Um, the basic stool tests that are helpful in diagnosis would include excluding infective causes, um, so a microscopy, culture and sensitivity, uh, or overcysts and parasite screen or, it would be very uh, relevant, as well as excluding Clostridium difficile, um, particularly in those patients that have had recent antibiotic exposures. The other test that has uh, just made it onto the PBS late last year is the faecal calprotectin. Uh, this is a really excellent test to essentially rule out uh, any functional causes uh, uh, for intestinal symptoms uh, because if it's a normal result, the faecal calprotectin basically tells you that at that point in time there's no active intestinal inflammation occurring and you can start to think about more functional causes such as uh, irritable bowel syndrome for example. And the only other test that might be helpful uh, at the general practice setting might be a simple abdominal x-ray, but I don't usually advocate for abdominal x-rays for every presentation because a lot of the features on x-rays aren't always very obvious, particularly in subtle disease. And, and patients that do have uh, a diagnosis of uh, inflammatory bowel disease will end up having a lot of radiology if we get x-rays for every time that they come in. So we do try to minimize their radiation exposure wherever possible. Uh, and then the other tests which start to become a bit more specialized would include MRI scans, CT scans, uh, intestinal ultrasounds, and then endoscopic assessments such as gastroscopy and colonoscopy, which all generally would warrant a specialist referral and review. Uh -huh. Um, so what are the treatment options? 
the treatment options are improving all the time. 20, 30 years ago, the options might have been, you know, mesalazine, um, thiopurine, such as azathioprine, uh, or steroids. Um, but, you know, since the turn of the century, we've sort of seen the rise of the anti-TNF medications, such as infliximab or adalimumab, and then a whole plethora of other biologics, such, such as vedolizumab, ustekinumab, and small molecule agents, um, uh, including tofacitinib, which has just come onto the PBS for ulcerative colitis this year. Um, so sticking to the milder end of the disease spectrum, 5-ASA therapy, 5-ASA drugs are really, really great drugs for mild to moderate ulcerative colitis and work really well, usually in combination of both an oral 5-ASA and a rectal ASA. So that could include either an enema or a suppository. Um, usually for left-sided ulcerative colitis, we recommend um, enema therapy, as it's probably the most efficacious in terms of reaching where the, the medication needs to get to um, uh, the most effectively. Um, commonly, we will also add in oral therapy because dual therapy has been shown to be to have a, an additive benefit. Um, but we try and work out what is the most effective strategy and, and try and keep them on monotherapy if if at all possible. Um, Beyond um, the splenic flexure, so if you have disease inf- involving the ascending colon or the transverse colon, enemas have a bit less of a role and you start looking at more of the oral therapies. In the rectum for ulcerative colitis, we generally use suppositories because enemas tend to go above the rectum and, and not coat the rectum as well as a suppository might do. Um, um, sticking with 5-ASAs, these are not that useful in Crohn's disease and their use is not really at all supported by the literature. So I tend to avoid 5-ASAs in Crohn's disease. The only exemption to that might be really mild Crohn's disease where you're not really reaching the benchmark to step up to thiopurines, in which case um, you may use 5-ASA therapies. Um, particularly ones that have ileal release, such as Pentasa. But again, the evidence to support this is very limited. And, and in effect, um, you know, budesonide might have a better role in these patients anyway. Um, and then this, the next step up um, are the immunomodulators. And the immunomodulators include azathioprine, mecaptopurine, or methotrexate. And these are typically the next step in the algorithm for either Crohn's disease and, and or ulcerative colitis. Um, they have good evidence for both. Um, and these should really be initiated in liaison with a gastroenterologist, but they can easily um, be monitored and maintained once the patient is in remission by the general practitioner. Uh, and we'll talk a bit more about what role the GP plays um, in monitoring these patients. Goku, what role does the GP play in the treatment of the condition? Yeah, so just following on from that last point, I, th- I think the main role um, GPs play would be um, assessing patients that are presenting for the first time and having a degree of suspicion as to um, which patients need further investigation and which patients may uh, simply just need reassurance that they have, you know, irritable bowel syndrome or, or some other non um, uh, or less concerning pathology. Um, and then I think the other role that GPs play is monitoring diagnosed patients, um, particularly those patients who are biologic naive and are on the milder end of the spectrum in terms of therapy, such as 5-ASAs or thiopurine therapy, 
Um, GPs just really need to be aware of what to look out for, how to monitor these kinds of patients. So um, starting with 5-ASAs, the, the side effect profile is fairly minor and usually um, patients tolerate these drugs really well, but occasionally patients can experience a um, rebound of worsening diarrhea. Uh, very rarely, but there are case reports report, you know, suggesting that acute kidney injury or pericarditis has been reported with these um, drugs. Uh, and one thing to be aware of in the young male population is that reversible azoospermia, so essentially reversible infertility, is a known side effect from these medications. Um, the slightly bigger class of drug that, pat that patients need slightly tighter monitoring for um, other thiopurines. So for azathioprine and mecaptopurine particularly, um, the side effect profile, again, these are fairly safe drugs, but they do need close monitoring. So the side effect profile in the first sort of three-month period can include abdominal pain, flu-like illnesses, myalgias, and, and not every patient will experience these, but it's important to know that this can be very normal and often wears off after about four to six weeks' time if patients can get through that period. Um, one tip that I have for GPs is um, splitting the dose. So instead of taking, say, 100 milligrams of azathioprine in the morning, if patients take 50 milligrams BD, that actually can help patients because it um, allows the body's enzymes to metabolize the drug a little slower and avoids overwhelming the, the enzymes to result in these side effects. Um, the other side effect from azathioprine and mecaptopurine is pancreatitis. This is pretty rare, it occurs about 3% of the time, but it's a sign that these patients really should not be on these therapies um, and there's no way of sort of jollying them along, splitting the dose, reducing the dose and that kind of thing. You just need to take them off the drug and find something else to, to use. And then the other um, things to look for in blood tests um, uh, is leukopenia. So patients can get a leukopenia or, or a neutropenia uh, and LFT derangements are uh, somewhat common but very reversible. Um, so really these patients should be having blood tests every three months. Um, Patients, another category of drug that GPs will see quite commonly and, and be pretty well versed in, so I won't dwell on it, will be methotrexate. Um, so just to reinforce the, the messaging around lung fibrosis potentially as well as hepatic injury uh, and, and to avoid uh, this drug in young female patients particularly, but also young male patients who are planning to have a family uh, soon. Uh, and and GPs will also be pretty well versed in the side effects of long-term steroid use. And I'll just make a point here to say that IBD is not a condition where we expect patients to be on steroids long-term, even low doses of 5 or 7 or 10 um, milligrams. That's not something we um, aim for. With the amount of drugs available, um, patients should really be weaned off steroids completely. Um, uh, and, and that's something that needs to be uh, discussed with the gastroenterologist. If a patient has come to you and said, oh, I've been on, you know, 7 or 10 milligrams of prednisone for IBD, you know, my whole life, that's, that's quite concerning and really we should be looking at ways to improve that situation. Okay. What is the likelihood of recurrence of IBD? Um, so 
the natural disease course of Crohn's and, and ulcerative colitis is typically one of um, relapse episodes and then remission periods. Um, and the goal is to get patients into remission as quickly as possible and for as long as possible. Um, we know from Crohn's disease data over time, repeated episodes of um, inflammation and flare uh, leads to worsening um, and progressive structural damage. And this can lead to worsening um, quality of life, uh, increasing hospitalization costs, surgical um, therapy, uh, you know, and just worsening um, disease progression over time. So um, we really need to try and prevent recurrence as much as possible and then treat it as quickly um, and aggressively as possible if it does occur. Um, GPs are often the first port of call for patients who are flaring, so it's really important to remember um, that whilst you will see flares quite commonly, that you do still need to exclude other causes. So going through um, your other differentials, like we talked about earlier, is still really important. But patients are pretty good at knowing when they're actually flaring versus having something a little different. So um, I think these patients do need to be reassessed um, with potentially MRI or colonoscopy um, um, to, to work out how severe the flare is and make decisions about whether, you know, time has sort of run its course with the current therapy and they need switching to another therapy. And therapy has really changed in the last 10 or 20 years such that we don't try to dwell on therapies, you know, too long. Um, we do really want to get the most out of each drug, but we don't want to f essentially flog a dead horse if patients are starting to get worsening aggressive disease. So we really need to be aware of the balance between, you know, not burning through too many drugs, but also not letting the disease progress and get away from us before switching therapy. So that's quite a fine balance. And patients that are flaring frequently more than once or twice a year really need uh, really prompt reassessment and consideration of switching therapies. Okay, cool. When should a GP refer? So I think we've covered a lot of when patients should be referred. So I'll just raise some of the red flags. And this is these are common red flags for most gastrointestinal, gastrointestinal conditions. Um, I think essentially iron deficiency, anemia, unintentional weight loss or um, unexpected weight loss, rectal bleeding or bloody diarrhea, um, nocturnal symptoms or bowel movements um, are always abnormal. Um, and need referral, Fa a family history of bowel cancer um, and signs or symptoms suggestive of bowel obstruction or impending bowel obstruction all need urgent referral. Um, and then other re reasons for referral in the absence of red flags would probably include um, raised inflammatory markers without an alternative cause. I mean, that's a pretty obvious one. Um, and then a raised fecal calprotectin. So just briefly on calprotectin levels, uh, the normal level um, or the reference range is, is anything below 50. Um, then there's a bit of a gray zone between 50 to 100. And these patients really could have a, a, re, a repeat calprotectin in, in two weeks time. Um, and that's what the PBS, uh, I guess, criteria would suggest is that any patients under 50 years old with symptoms that have persisted more than six weeks suggestive of inflammatory or, or functional bowel disease uh, can have an initial calprotectin 
uh, under the PBS, and then a, a repeat calprotectin can be ordered in that grey zone of 50 to 100. And sometimes these patients may have had temporary inflammation from perhaps a gastroenteritis episode, or even have some perianal pathology such as hemorrhoids, which may give them an elevated calprotectin but they don't have any long-term pathology needing further intervention. So a repeat test may have dropped below 50, in which case they're, they're better off being managed as uh, a functional disorder. On the other hand, if you have someone that has a calprotectin well above 100, or, or, or certainly if it's above 150 to 200, then these patients would, would most likely have active inflammation and need further investigation, likely with a colonoscopy, because even if they do back, drop back to normal, that level of inflammation is a little bit more concerning and, and we'd, we'd want to follow that up. Uh, but that's a rough framework for, for people that are, that are ordering calprotectins, which, which now thankfully can be initiated in the general practice setting. Have there been any developments in treatment in the last few years or are there any in trial or development phase now? Um, there's probably too many to name and outline for the purposes of this podcast, but, um, and, and quite actually, to be honest, the, the number of trials available is quite difficult to keep on top of, even for the general gastroenterologist. So, I mean, that's really good news for patients. Um, it just means that there are lots and lots of different drug trials in the pipeline and, and lots of available drugs becoming, you know, coming onto the market for patients, uh, with IBD. So it's, um, um, a really, exciting time to be working in this field um, and we do have availabilities or options for patients to be enrolled in these trials in some of the tertiary centres across major cities in Australia. So I think that's something, that's another reason for patients to be referred if they've reached the end of their sort of treatment algorithm, really look for other options because trials can be a way forward for patients. Gokul, thank you for your time here today in the PodMD studio. To sum up for us, could you please identify the three key take-home messages from today's podcast on IBD? Yeah, absolutely. So I think my main messaging would be, one, uh, inflammatory, inflammatory bowel disease is really very common and should always be considered in the workup of any patient with diarrhea, even if it's non-bloody diarrhea. The second point is nocturnal diarrhea or blood in the stool are never normal and they really warrant further investigation and referral by, uh, to a gastroenterologist. Um, and then thirdly, prednisone is not a long-term therapy for inflammatory bowel disease. It's really best used as an agent to induce remission, but then you really want to aim for, um, you know, other steroid-sparing agents to maintain that remission. Thanks again for your time and the insights you've provided. Thanks. Thanks a lot.